Well, this morning, I would ask you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Obadiah. Obadiah is right between Amos and Jonah. And if you blink, you'll miss it. So, Obadiah. And then our other key verse, which is John 3.16, which is always part of our message series, Love Letters from God. I'll ask you to stand as I read the scripture this morning. First, our key verse, John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And then Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise, let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights, you who say to yourself, Who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, and you will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, Will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, Timon, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in their day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy. And Jacob will possess his inheritance. Jacob will be a fire and Joseph a flame. Esau will be a stubble. And they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau. People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau, and people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. The company of Israelites, exiles who are in Canaan, will possess the land as far as Zarephath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the towns of the Negev. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Let us pray. Hide me behind your cross, Lord Jesus. Articulate the Father's heart through my voice, 
and let the Holy Spirit breathe new life to us, opening our ears to hear the message of God. Amen. You may be seated. It felt like she had been pregnant forever. The constant movement of the babies in her womb felt like her own body was at war within her. God had even told her they were two nations. But the pains finally had come, and her water broke, and now the midwife was on her way. The children were coming. Perhaps the war was nearly at an end. It was not. The boys, Esau and Jacob, were born to Rebekah that day, but only with more fighting. Esau was born first, but Jacob was holding his brother's heel. The brothers were very different. Esau was hairy and a hunter. He was an outdoorsman. Jacob was a homebody. Esau was Isaac's favorite. Jacob was Rebekah's. Esau gave up his birthright to Jacob for a pot of stew. Jacob tricked his father into giving him Esau's blessing. Esau became Edom. Jacob became Israel. These nations, as they eventually grew to be, were not generally at war with each other. They were neighboring countries. Neither was large enough to protect or attack the other, so they were mostly indifferent. The Edomites were well defended and protected. But when the Babylonians came and defeated the Israelites and sacked Jerusalem, the Edomites gloated and boasted and rejoiced over their demise. We don't know the exact date and time Obadiah wrote this oracle, but it is essentially God's denouncement of Edom's actions, God's pronouncement of judgment on that nation, and the promise from God, as always, of redemption and salvation for all nations. That's the whole story of Obadiah's oracle. Esau's descendants not only don't help Jacob's descendants, they essentially dance on the grave of Israel, eventually running in and looting whatever bits and pieces the Babylonians had left behind. And God holds them accountable for this and tells them that they will pay. Obadiah is not usually a book that preachers spend a lot of time on. As we talk about minor prophets, this last bit of the Old Testament, that classification is basically based on the length of the book. And if we do that, we would say that Obadiah is kind of a minorist. It's only 21 verses long. And it's a little tough to take an application from a book that is so specifically directed at particular circumstances in a particular nation. And it doesn't really have a lot of other ideas in it. But there are two things that we can look at in Obadiah. God is not a fan of those who are prideful and those who denounce those who take advantage of those who have been taken advantage of already. And actions have consequences. God's love still extends to those who mess up. If you were to look back through the story of Jacob slash Israel and Esau slash Edom, you would think that the wrong guy was the recipient of the blessing. 
Jacob was a cheater and a trickster. And he did experience the consequences of those actions eventually. But God's plan always includes the idea of redemption. When we repent, we are offered a way out. We'll talk more about the idea of redemption and repentance next week when we talk about Jonah. But one of the key takeaways takeaways for us from Obadiah's text is that even though our actions have consequences, and by the way, salvation doesn't necessarily remove them, God is always waiting for us to return to him and move away from what we used to be to what God has called us to be. This week, Christians around the world will begin a season of fasting and reflection called Lent. It covers the entire 45 days prior to Easter, and throughout, it is an opportunity for us to explore the places where we need to repent. Many people fast during Lent, not always foods, but they fast things that have distracted them, ideas and things that are hard for them or that get in the way of their relationship with God. Everyone is trying to find ways to realign their hearts and spirits with the work that God is doing in their lives, remembering that God has called us away from a life of rebellion to a life of renewal and transformation. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds, Paul writes in Romans. We need this season every year to help us identify the places that God is at work in ourselves. The kickoff for this season of reflection is Ash Wednesday. As I said before, we will celebrate it this year. We have uh, prepared for, we're preparing for uh, Ash Wednesday, and I encourage you to come. As we prepare our hearts for Lent, we have a devotional that each family is encouraged to take and use for this period. I also have left some post-it notes and pens on the back table. Uh, If I could get somebody to help me out by passing out one post-it note and a pen to anyone who needs it, we might have to share pens because I only have a handful. But everyone should get a post-it. Forget your dad. One of our songs today, Come Thou Found, there is a line that says, Here I raise my Ebenezer. And it's a recall back to a time when uh, the Israelites saw God's hand at work in their lives, and Samuel called them to raise an Ebenezer as a symbol of that moment. 
In our lives, sometimes we need symbolism to remind us of the work of God in our lives too. And today, we're going to start that process by writing on our post-it note the one area we need to pray about and ask God to be at work in our lives. Maybe this is something that you need to be repentant for, a life issue that's a burden, anything at all. I'm going to ask everyone to pray about it for a moment. We'll take a moment, and then I'd ask you to write it down. Once you've written it down, I have this red jar here on the altar, and I'll ask you to come and put it in the red jar. Once everyone has put their notes in, don't worry, no one's going to read them. I'm going to take them outside and burn them. And then the ashes from what we have burned today will be used in our Ash Wednesday service as a point of identifying and reminding us of our need for repentance and redemption and our hope that has created in us the beauty of lifelong transformation as Christ works in us and through us. So write down on your post-it what you have to say after we pray here for a moment. If you have written what you need to write, just kind of put it in the jar. As you're getting seated, don't forget to put your pen back on the table and grab a blue sheet. go through our weekly affirmation, confirmation of God's love for us. If you would speak where it's bolded on your page. What does it mean to say God loves? To create us, to form us from the dust, to let us fail, 
to let us choose our own way over God's, to let us chain ourselves to sin and defeat and heartbreak and sorrow and death. God loved us enough to provide a rescue, a way back, through wanderers, murderers, adulterers, defaulters, promise breakers, foreigners, strangers, and lovers. God loved us enough to show us mothers, judges, kings, and prophets who loved and spoke for God and kept reminding us of the promise of redemption. To show us how evil and wrong continually mess things up and how obedience to God fosters holiness and bestows blessing. To send us Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, to preach and live peace, grace, hope, joy, and love. See Jesus rejected, to see him die, to see him buried. To raise Jesus from the dead and send the Holy Spirit to remind us of all we have in him and empower us to live like Jesus. To want us to live like Jesus, an abundant life infused with all the fruit of the Spirit, redeemed, free, loved. To still let us choose our own destiny. To promise the hope of forever, of resurrection from the dead, and final judgment. God loved us enough. God loves us enough. God will always love us enough. For God so loved the world. God loves you. God wants you to know it. God wants you to live in it. God wants you to be able to love others because you know you are loved. And God's love is expressed to us every week, most tangibly, as we gather at this table. The son who died and yet lives gave everything so we could know the depth of God's love. So come, drink the wine, eat the bread. Know you are loved. God loves you. Go love the world with him.